So two days after Christmas uh, in the year 1831, the HMS Beagle, which is a Navy merchant vessel under the command of a 27-year-old captain by the name of Robert Fitzroy, set sail from England on a voyage around the world. The mission was to survey the South Americas, Africa, and Australia to find possible trade routes and to map the geography of the land. And and accompanying this young Captain Fitzroy was an even younger 22-year-old geologist by the name of Charles Darwin. Darwin was eager for real-life field experience encountering and cataloging new creatures. But Darwin was disenfranchised with the church of his day, and I really don't blame him. He was disenfranchised. For him, this voyage would be a welcome reprieve. And this journey was as much about Fields' experience as it was about making sense of the world that Darwin lived in. Darwin would encounter existential questions like, why do the oceans teem with magnificent and beautiful creatures where no man is there to appreciate them? He would ask moral questions like, how can the people of the Brazils be surrounded by such an astounding landscape, be so immaculate themselves, and yet indulge in tribal slavery? He would encounter Christian anomalies, questions like, how can Christians support the genocide and eradication of native people groups? And he'd ponder questions like, what kind of force could possibly raise the Andes mountains to their great height? And after a five-year journey around the world, encountering new species and documenting these various uh, variations and characteristics he saw in them, digging in ancient dirt and climbing trees in in primeval rainforest, a now 27-year-old Charles Darwin would return to England with a budding theory on how his world works. He had thought he'd made sense of the world around him. It would become what we now know as the theory of evolution, or more commonly known as the survival of the fittest. I'm sure you've heard of it. It essentially states that organisms will always evolve by embracing and replicating the traits which make them strong while simultaneously rejecting the traits which make them weak. They will always choose what is more probable to result in survival as opposed to what may result in risk, pain, injury, or death. Now, Charles Darwin was an absolutely brilliant man, and I can't overstate that a much. Charles Darwin was absolutely brilliant. He was far smarter than I am, and I'm sure he was probably more intelligent than anybody in this room, probably more intelligent than anyone will ever listen to this sermon is. Not only that, but between 1831 and 1837, Charles Darwin saw more of the world than most of us in five short years than most of us will ever see in our entire lives. Charles Darwin was an educated, cultured, well-traveled individual. But Charles Darwin was wrong, in a sense at least. Because nearly 2,000 years before Darwin, the one who created the beautiful people of Brazil, who formed the stunning creatures of the deep, who raised the Andes Mountains to their great height and gave birth to these primeval forests which Darwin thought were so immaculate, spoke contrary to Darwin's theory. He spoke them to similarly 
educated groups of well-cultured men, and Jesus said these words, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. My hope today is this, is that we encounter Jesus' words on the kingdom of God, we would be pressed, constrained, uncomforted, shaken up, and spurred to live in a way that progressively displays the upside-down, seemingly foolish, recklessly antithetical, radical, and costly ways of King Jesus and his kingdom. Before we do that, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are so very, very different than me. Lord, I thank you that you came. You gave of yourself. You died a death on a cross. You took what the world thought was losing and you turned it into victory. And Lord, now you are teaching us to live differently. I pray that through the reading of your word and the, and the, the public proclamation of who you are and what you've done, I pray that you would change us to make us more like you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as you all know, we are in the middle of our new series, Mission Possible, where we're looking at the mission of Convergent Church and how it expands God's kingdom and how it furthers God's great commission to see all of the world redeemed. Today, we're talking about the concept of kingdom. What does it mean when we say Convergent Church exists to connect people to Christ, kingdom, and community? And where I'd like to begin is to really get a sense of what it means to show the people of Owasso how to live as kingdom servants. How do we show our city what it looks like to be servants of the kingdom of King Jesus? And I want to start with this question. What is the kingdom of God. What is this thing that we are talking about? And I think the best way to do it, and, and I pondered this, I think the best way to do it is to break it up into two categories. The kingdom of God is not, and the kingdom of God is. So let's start with the kingdom of God is not, and I'd like us to just sit under scripture to take these words of Jesus in. I'm not going to stand up here and pretend I'm the one who's going to interpret all of this for you, but let scripture inform you, let it work on your hearts and bask in the truth of what Jesus has said about his kingdom. So let's start with the kingdom of God is not. Luke 17, 20 through 21. The kingdom of God is not easily observed. Jesus says this, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It is not easily observed. The kingdom of God is not revealed to everyone. Matthew 13, 11, and I suggest you write these verses down. The kingdom of God is not revealed to everyone. And he answered them, 
To you it is given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. He's talking to the disciples. But to them, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, it has not been given. The kingdom of God is not of this world. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom of God is not able to be destroyed. Daniel 2, 44. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4.20, For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. Similarly, in his letter to the Romans, in Romans 14, 17, Paul says the kingdom of God is not what we eat or drink, but it considers how we deeply display righteousness, peace, and joy. He says, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Finally, Paul says to the Galatians in Galatians 5, 19 through 21, that the kingdom of God is not without standards. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The Bible says a lot about what the kingdom of God is not. But it also says much about what the kingdom of God is. John 3, 3. The kingdom of God is something that cannot even be seen, grasped, or understood unless one is born again. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. The kingdom of God is imperishable. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Jesus says the kingdom of God is inherited by the meek in spirit. Those who are broken and grieve over their sin in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says that the kingdom of God is something that belongs to those with childlike faith in Matthew 19.14. But Jesus said, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of heaven. Lastly, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 17 through 19. The kingdom of God is a place where God's laws, all of God's laws are observed. He said, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The Bible has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's not easily observed. It can't even be seen unless one's spiritual eyes have been opened by the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of God is not a particular place, though it covers the entire face of the earth. There's not a single speck of dirt, water, or air where King Jesus does not presently reign. And yet, the totality of his kingdom, the fullness of his kingdom and reign has not yet been realized. Therefore, the kingdom now belongs to those who believe that Jesus is king over every thought, word, deed, emotion, and live as though that reality is true. We can't view the kingdom by geographical or, or cultural means. I mean, Americans have no more access to the kingdom than Europeans, and the kingdom doesn't permeate Australian cultures more than it does African cultures. The kingdom of God doesn't robe itself in red, white, and blue. It doesn't. The kingdom of God is not a present utopia. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Now, if I were to take all that the Bible says, and this is not all the Bible says about the kingdom of God. This is what I thought I needed to add. But if I were to sum up a comprehensive idea of what the Bible says about God's kingdom, I would say that God's kingdom comes and is seen wherever King Jesus is dearly loved, supremely admired, and passionately emulated. And the kingdom of God comes wherever Jesus' character is clear. So let's look at that first point. Jesus must be deeply loved. Or in other words, kingdom servants must first, and this is essential, kingdom servants must first cultivate an affection for the king. I'm going to say that again. Kingdom servants must first Cultivate an affection for the king. In our verse today, when Jesus said the kingdom of God was in the midst of you, he wasn't simply speaking of the reality that his kingdom had begun. He was saying that. Jesus had come to earth, and the kingdom was inaugurated. You guys ever see those photos where a ship is being sent off to sail, and they break a wine glass, or sometimes they try to break a wine bottle against it, it doesn't work? That's what happened when Jesus came. He inaugurated the kingdom. He set it loose. But more importantly than that, Jesus was saying that the kingdom had come because he was presently dwelling with his people. And if I were to ask you, what is the primary characteristic of the kingdom of God, what would you say? If I were to ask you, what is the the most special, the main point of the kingdom of God, what would it be? I'm sure you have many ideas. 
But I believe the primary characteristics of God's kingdom is that it's where the king dwells. The primary characteristic of God's kingdom is it is where the king is. When the king is in the midst of his people, the most amazing thing about the kingdom of God is that King Jesus is king over the kingdom. No king, no kingdom. The question then for us as we endeavor to reach a city Do we deeply love Jesus enough to make it evident that the king is among us? Do we love Jesus enough to make it evident that the king is among us? Are our affections for Jesus so stirred that the sole aim is to do whatever it takes to love and adore him and to make it known that the king resides here? See, this is where showing our city what it means to be kingdom servants begins. But unfortunately for many of us, and myself included, we don't spend our time and effort focusing on the first things. We don't spend much time intentionally growing our love for Jesus every day. And for many of us, and I feel I'm in this season, and many of you maybe as well, it is time to look back and remember what makes our king so worthy of our love. What makes our king so worthy of being followed and cherished and treasured? This is not the first time the church has forgotten what makes the king so worthy great. In the book of Revelation, Jesus himself makes an indictment against the church of Ephesus. He says this in Revelation 2, 4 through 5, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church at Ephesus was a great church. They were zealous for good works. They patiently endured persecution. They could not stand heresy or anything that was contrary to God's word. And they did not tolerate sin. But they lacked something fundamental in their endeavors to walk like Jesus. They lacked a fundamental love and adoration for their king. And Jesus calls them to return to the first things. And I don't think I would be the only one to say that this is what our city has seen for a long time. Christians who lack fundamental knowledge of what it means for the king's servants to adore the king and to make his presence among them known. And this begins with us, Convergent Church. More importantly, this begins with you, people of Convergent Church. What if I told you that the rate 
at which the kingdom of God advances in the city of Owasso was directly proportionate to the people of Jesus, or the people of Owasso, seeing your love for Jesus. What if I told you that the kingdom advancing in the city of Owasso was directly proportionate to your love for Jesus being displayed? What if I told you they need to see Jesus in you all the time? What would you do? What would you change? What spiritual rhythms would you adopt? What would you begin to value differently? What if I told you that your small part is integral in Jesus being known as king over not just your life, but the lives of your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors? Now, there are many ways that we can cultivate a deep love for Jesus, and that's not the point of the sermon today. The point is this. It begins with us making a decision that we are going to intentionally fall more deeply in love with King Jesus. That we are going to place King Jesus as the highest priority of our lives, the sole aim of our affections, and the one to whom our heart longs. And one of the ways we start this is by beginning to value what the king values. Our second point, Jesus must be supremely admired. Or we can put it this way, kingdom servants must value what the king values. Now, I'm going to share with you a story. I'm sure my wife would edit this a little bit, but she's shaking it in her seat right now. So when I got married... Um, I was a slob, and I know that's putting it lightly, I get it. Um, I was not only a slob, but I was also lazy, I was self-centered, I was prideful, and amazingly, I'm still married today. We'll see how the rest of the day goes, but, but I, amazingly, I'm still married today, and that's a testimony to Chelsea's immense patience and grace towards me. But as I walked in, in matrimony with this wonderful wife of mine, I began to understand what she valued and how to best love her. I found out she didn't much like me leaving my underwear on the bathroom floor or on the kitchen floor or in the living room floor, pretty much anywhere other than the hamper. I also found out that she really enjoyed it when I helped out around the house and did my fair share to make sure that our home was clean and inviting and comfortable for us to live. I found out that my wife was appalled by self-centeredness and that it would make her run as fast as possible and that I couldn't hide it from her and my silver tongue couldn't fool her and she knew when that was out for myself when I was looking out for me. And over the course of nine years, I've learned, and I'm still learning, what drives Chelsea away and what pulls Chelsea closer. Admiring Jesus and being a kingdom servant is a lot like being married. And it's not a mistake that God calls his people the bride of Christ. 
When we value what Jesus values, Jesus is delighted and loves to dwell with his people. Now, Jesus is always delighted to be among us, but he is doubly pleased when we value what he values. When we do this, it becomes increasingly evident that Jesus dwells in our midst, and our city gets to see Jesus. Because everything that Jesus values finds its source in Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Everything that Jesus values finds its source in Jesus. Jesus values love because he is love. He values joy because he is the embodiment of joy. Jesus values peace because he is the king of peace. He values Justice, because he's just. And mercy, because he is most merciful. When we display these things, we show that we admire Jesus and we magnify Jesus in a city that desperately needs to see what Jesus is really like. And when Jesus becomes supremely admired among us, we want no greater thing than for our heart to beat for the same rhythms and values that make Jesus' heart beat, the same passions that drive him. Jesus' heart is for the broken among us. It is for the mistreated of Owasso. It's for the hurting and downtrodden. Jesus' heart is for children with no food in their bellies, no jackets on their backs, no place to call home. Jesus' heart beats for elder shut-ins with no family. And Jesus' heart beats for hopeless addicts. Jesus' heart is for the religiously abused and confused of Owasso. Jesus' heart is for all those in the city of Owasso foolish enough to deny him. In Convergent Church, Jesus' heart is what we want. And Jesus' heart is what we must have. When we live with hearts like Jesus, our city doesn't see a Jameson, or a Courtney, or a Chelsea, or a Rose, our city sees, wow, there is something palpably different about this group of people. There is something I cannot explain. And it opens doors for us to say, the thing that you cannot explain about me is Jesus in me. When we have hearts like Jesus, we are equipped. And it is an essential equipping. When we have hearts like Jesus, we are equipped not to build the church that we want, but to build the church that Jesus wants. When we have hearts like Jesus, we can build the kingdom Jesus' way and for Jesus' glory. Let's move to our last point. Jesus must be 
passionately emulated. In other words, kingdom's servants must seek the king's kingdom first. Kingdom servants must seek the king's kingdom first. And and I think it's safe to say that in his day, most people didn't know what to do with Jesus, and most people don't know what to do with Jesus now. But when Jesus began his public ministry, his his methods were so drastically counter-cultural that many wrote Jesus off as a complete fool, an absolute crazy. But those who embraced Jesus' ways, he promised an abundant life and the ability to share that abundant life with others. He said things like this. And I want you to, I just really want you to think about how crazy some of these ideas are. He said things like this. The first shall be last. The first shall be last. He said things like, if you want to be rich, be willing to give away what you have. If you want to be rich, be willing to give away what you have. He said, the way that we get even with our enemies is not by revenge, but by loving them sacrificially. The way we get even with the people who hate us is by love. He said things like this, forsake what is temporal and fleeting, but spend your time storing up treasures that are eternal. And probably my favorite one, he said this, in order to have true life, you must first die. In order to have true life, you must first die. Now, even to my regenerated Holy Spirit awakened sensibilities. Jesus makes no sense. Jesus makes no sense sometimes. My nature is so inclined to follow the wisdom of this world that it's hard for me to take Jesus at his word. It's it's a struggle for me to believe that love will truly overcome evil. It's it's a struggle for me to think I don't need to worry about material things because my Father in heaven will take care of them. Anybody struggle with that? I do. (laughs) Big time. It's a struggle to remember that humility and service and self-sacrifice is the way to honor in the kingdom and not excellence and applause. It is a struggle, and I forget that those who stoop the lowest, those who wash the feet of the downtrodden, are the ones who get to reign with the king in the kingdom. It's not the most talented preachers. It's not the most magnificent singers. It's not the most benevolent tithers among us. It's those who self-sacrificially serve, those who are abased, made to seem foolish for the king. And maybe you forget these things too. So often the way we walk and live and make our decisions do not emulate and mirror the Savior we say we so long to reflect. My friends, you know that I love the Bible. Every word of, of, of God's word is a treasure to me, and I don't hold the red letters or Jesus' words as higher than the rest of the Bible. I love Paul, and I cherish Peter, and I deeply admire John, and, 
You ask my wife, I think, I think James is my friend, like me and James are tight. There's something about Jesus that makes me stop and stare and say, oh my God, what a man, what a savior. I can take the whole Bible and cradle it as precious, but Jesus, if there's one person I want to be like, it's Jesus. Because no one in all of history, in both thought, word, and deed, so perfectly displays to me what my God is like. Convergent Church, Jesus is to be passionately followed and Emulated. And let me rephrase that. Jesus is to be passionately followed and emulated. And I'm preaching to my own heart because there's days where I lack a fundamental love and admiration and passion for Jesus. But Jesus still reaches out to the church today and he says, follow me. Be like me. Walk like me, and I will make you fishers of men. I, my ways, my words, my character, my power will grow the kingdom. He asks us again, is the servant above the master? Are we above Jesus? Is it too much for us to live like him. And so today, ask yourselves and be open to the Spirit am I really living like Jesus? Jesus was never a spectator. In other words, Jesus was always in the game. Jesus never rode the bench. He was always seeking ways to show people the radical and upside-down values of his kingdom. And Jesus never overlooked or squandered an opportunity to make much of God and to advance God's kingdom. But that's not something I can say about myself. I am so often a consumer of God's grace. I'm so often a consumer of what goes on in the church, but Jesus was always a contributor in every sense. Jesus served and gave and humbled himself every moment. And my friends, it is the heart and ways of Jesus that build the kingdom of God and teach others to come into it. There's not a manual for teaching people how to live as kingdom servants. But the way we do that is by living like Jesus and showing this miraculous and immaculate Savior that we love to them. The kingdom won't come because we have a flashy put-together church. Kingdom won't come because there's booming businesses. The kingdom won't come because there's a Christian government, even though all those things are really, really good. The kingdom will not advance when we've accumulated enough money or power or respect or merit in our city. The kingdom of God will advance 
when we begin to see Jesus and his ways as simply better than our own. Simply better than my own. When we take seriously how Jesus carried himself and passionately seek to emulate him, and when we trust Jesus enough to make his words not just words but action in our life. James put it like this, do not be hearers of the word only, but doers of the word. Here's the good news. Jesus has promised you and me, children of God, a great inheritance. In Revelation 22, he promised us a day when no one cries because of hurt or pain or sadness, but instead cries tears of joy for all that God has done. He promised us a day when we would be so welcomed into God's kingdom that he would place his own name upon our foreheads, expressing ownership of us. He promised us the day when we will need no lamps or flashlights or cell phone lights. We won't even need a sun because the light of God will be fully in our midst. And our vision as Convergent Church is to see a day when the city of Owasso displays a kingdom like that one. To see a day when King Jesus is so palpably in the midst of his church that people look on and say, wow, what a savior. But we will not inherit that promise by worldly wisdom. We won't inherit it because we did what was smart, conventional, safe, or even rational. We won't get there by being responsible Christians. We won't get there by having all the answers. As Darwin believed, self-preservation won't get us there. Strength won't get us there. Rejecting our weakness won't get us there. Only our deep love, admiration, faith, and desire to be like Jesus. To show our city who kingdom people are. So that our vision would be realized. And for the church in Owasso, not just Convergent Church, but that they would look on to the church in Owasso and they would say, there is a king in their midst. Let's pray. Lord, we can't begin to thank you for making us your own. Lord, we can't begin to thank you for taking those who were so far away from your kingdom, had no idea what it meant to live and be like you, and you died on a cross, you shed your own blood, you lived sinlessly, Lord, 
so that we could be part of your kingdom. Lord, your word tells us that you're building a temple of living stones, that each of us, brick by brick, is being built up into a kingdom imperishable. Lord, this is our prayer as Convergent Church. We want the walls of that kingdom to look however you want them. Lord, we want this kingdom that we strive to push forward to have your name and your fame and your glory and your hand plastered all the way across it. Lord, help us to do that and help our hearts to stay there for each of us individually, Lord, that we would value so deeply what you value in the body of Christ and as we go out into the world, Lord. Help the city open their eyes to see the Jesus inside of us. Help us to work to display it. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.